The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Tuesday, November 14th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, 11, 14, 17 is evenly spaced out. The last evenly spaced out date was, I believe, 9, 13, 17. And then before that, 7, 12, 17. And the next totally evenly spaced out date is going to be 2, 10, 18. I never, I never refund the date. Maybe this could be a new thing in the gist. Anyway, Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, is a former Navy SEAL who rode a horse to his first day in the job. Seems cool, except when you realize that Roy Moore rode a horse to vote and that two Navy SEALs are accused of killing a Green Beret who knew about their money laundering scheme. Anyway, Ryan Zinke is allowing employees to bring their dogs to work. Isn't that nice? And he installed in the cafeteria of the Interior Department a, uh, a video game. Yeah, it's a hunting video game. But you know what? The Huffington Post, bunch of weak-kneed urban baby faces, bemoans the big game hunter video game. But when you think about it, the Secretary of Interior's job is to maintain hunting lands. It's actually right there as a thing he has to do. And let's say you're really against hunting animals. Isn't a video game about hunting animals a better way to go? Less destructive? Better for the deer? The entire Huffington Post article that I read paints absolutely everything Ryan Zinke is doing in the worst possible light. Its headline is, Interior Decorator, Zinke's Push to Redesign Flags and Accessorize with Dead Animals. Well, you'd rather he accessorize with live animals? Let's look at this part of the story. Along with entertaining unconventional flag requests, Interior staff worked through March to get the agency chief's office to his liking, emails show. The effort involved shuffling around a huge grizzly bear. Now, let's go back to the dead animals part. If that bear were a live animal, it would be much worse for the Interior staff, would it not? I am not a huge outdoorsman, but I have spoken to many ursine experts who say live grizzlies will not acquiesce to any amount of shuffling. Now, as you heard from the headline there in the HuffPo, a lot of attention being given to the Secretary's desire to redesign the Department of the Interior's flag, which seems like it could be a lot of fun. Zinke has also said that he would like the newly redesigned flag to be raised when he enters the building, stay up all day, and then when he leaves at night, to be lowered. Okay, some people allow location services on their smartphones. Zinke's going old school, but I told you, the guy rode a horse to work. At the very least, all this flag folder-all could provide a necessary distraction from Zinke's other notable achievement, which is securing a huge contract to rewire Puerto Rico for his friends back in Whitefish, Montana. But listen to how the efforts, which I think are very benign efforts of flag design, listen to how they're described in the Huffington Post with a quote from the co-director of the Flag Research Center. Quote, I think there's more of a military bent toward the use of flags than we've seen in previous administrations. What? You're the Flag Research Center. You of all people, of all centers, know that flags can mean a whole lot more than just the military? We don't know explicitly what the motivation is for the flag redesign. The old flag is not great. It has a buffalo and a mountain and a rising, possibly setting sun and words and a date. It violates lots of rules of good flag design. But we do know an overhaul is in the offing because HuffPo obtained emails to and from staffer Douglas Dominich, who is the Interior Assistant Secretary for Insular Areas. 
And I say, Huffington Poe and other flag fogies, take a lesson from that man's title. Do not relegate vexillological reimaginings to an insular area of disapproval. Be open to change. Let your freak flag fly, at least between the hours of 9 and 5, when the secretary is actually in the building. On the show today, I spiel about holding Bill Clinton's accusers to the same standards of those who accuse men of sexual misconduct today. But first... I'm really excited about this next interview. I was watching a House of Representatives Finance Committee hearing from 2001 on C-SPAN the other day. Don't judge! And there, giving testimony as to the benefits of a Bush tax cut was the same guy that the Trump administration has been relying on to sell their tax cuts today. It's their chief economist, Kevin Hassett. So what I did was I took all of his predictions from 16 years ago. I brought in my friend and economic smarty pants, Adam Davidson, and asked Adam, well, hasn't made all these predictions. Did they come true? The results just may captivate you. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Kevin Hassett is President Donald Trump's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Before being appointed to this role, Hassett was best known to the public as the co-author of Dow 36,000, the new strategy for profiting from the coming rise in the stock market. In that book, Hassett claimed that the then overvalued Dow, it was around 10,000 at the time, would hit yeah, 36,000 within five years. He even made a bet. He said, give me 10 years. If the Dow's closer to where it is now, 10,000, than 36,000, I'll pay $1,000 to a charity. And pay he did. Because 10 years later, in January of 2010, the stock market, which was at around 10,000 when he wrote the book, was still at about 10,000. All right, so that's one big, splashy, fabulously embarrassing bad call. But what about Hassett's calls that really mattered? So I was watching this old congressional hearing from 2001. George W. Bush tax cuts were just being introduced, and Hassett testified before Congress as a friendly witness to talk up the benefits of the tax cuts. Was he right? Joining us to evaluate is Adam Davidson, who covers economic issues for The New Yorker. He's co-founder of NPR's Planet Money. Hello, Adam. Thank you for joining. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Before we go to the videotape, general impressions or, I don't know, have you ever interviewed Hassett? General impressions of him? Yeah, I've talked to him many times. Kevin Hassett, who is very much on the market-loving Republican right, I would find him to be someone I could talk to. He wasn't just an ideologue spouting old ideologies. Um, He was a friendly guy and and a thoughtful guy. And I think a well-regarded guy across the aisle. I mean, I remember when he was up 
for running President Trump's Council on Economic Advisors, there was Council of Economic Advisors, there was a ton of economists, really prominent, prominent economists from very left wing, like Jared Bernstein, to moderates like Ben Bernanke and... Um, yeah, Jar- and- Jared Bernstein, who tweeted, Trump, CEA, Council of Economic Advisor Chair Kevin Hassett. Great choice. He's a conservative economist who cares a lot about people. Yeah, and yeah. he, I mean, Dean Baker, who's a friend of mine, who's a very left-wing economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, co-authored an op-ed famously, at least among economic nerds famously, um, <laughs> about the damage of unemployment. And and I do think, you know, you have in Kevin Hassett generally, like someone who understands the basic rules of economics, like you can't just say stuff off the top of your head. You have to have like formulas and math and and, yeah. and and data. Frankly, I think he was a relief given who Trump might have gone with. Hey, listen, I'll quote Austin Goolsby, who is an Obama economic advisor. Kevin Hassett is better than the administration deserves for the Council of Economic Advisors, given their actions, meaning the, meaning the administration, I pray could keep the isolationists from blowing up the world. And that's the exact issue. Every letter in praise of Kevin Hassett, every tweet from a liberal economist or even a Republican economist was actually about Peter Navarro. Mm -hmm. And Peter Navarro is the other PhD academic economist in Trump's inner circle. Who wrote a book called China's Killing Your Babies. China will kill everybody and we must stop all trade. And I wrote a piece about Peter Navarro for The New Yorker. He is, I think he might literally be the least respected, least liked economist in America. Mm-hmm. And and even people who you think might agree with him. Yeah. I mean, he's a very Trumpian guy, very boastful and loud and and not obsessed with the rules of proving things. Very little of Peter Navarro's work, none of his trade work right. was peer reviewed, for example. So so I think there was a terror that the Council of Economic Advisors would become Yet another rubber stamp for nonsense. So the analogy would be uh, when Trump appointed Kelly to run Homeland Security originally, one of the candidates in the running was said to be Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) Right. The thing with Kevin Hassett, though, is he has done what everyone in the world of Trump has done and, and has less than others, but he has tarnished his reputation. He has said things about Trump's desired tax cuts that are just crazy, just nonsensical. Well, that's what we want to do. We want to go back and actually talk about the things he has said about tax cuts, the salubrious effect of tax cuts. So here he was in February of 01, talking about uh, what was the economic condition at the time, the surplus. The odds are next year, when we're sitting here, hopefully, and talking again about another tax cut, then we're going to have an upward revision to the surplus if everything goes as it usually does. Indeed, uh, the, the effect of adding the last year, 2012, and taking away the first year, that in itself will probably add about $700 billion to the surplus. So he said these tax cuts will add to the surplus that the government had been experiencing. What really happened? Well, obvious, I don't know if it's obvious to everybody, but you know, the Bush tax cuts destroyed the surplus combined with the U.S. recession, a jobless recovery, an anemic recovery, et cetera, put us into a fairly deep deficit by raising debt, which made us less able to respond when the giant financial crisis came in 2007, 2008. And what growth may have come out of those tax cuts, because it is true that growth can, under the right circumstances, lead to growth. 
were what is famously called the jobless recovery, that they did not increase employment, that those gains largely went to the extremely rich. So when we talk about income inequality, there's a discussion about pre-tax versus post-tax income inequality, but those tax cuts definitely helped, actually in both ways, helped the rich people both make more money and keep more money. And I think for an awful lot of people who maybe, you know, consider them moderates, not supply-siders. And supply-siders are those who say, hey, if we just create the conditions for those who supply jobs, who supply goods, we create the right conditions for capital, then that's going to send us off to the races. We lower their taxes, they'll invest more, then they'll hire people, then those people will buy stuff. As opposed to the the implication there is we're not demand-siders, which is Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, who said, in conditions where there's an economic slump, the government can add to demand by spending government money. Anyway, it's a long, you know, this is the economic debate of the 20th century. But I, I would say Kevin Hassett's comments in 2001 would be seen by an awful lot of people as sort of the end of it being reasonable to say that. And that an argument could be made that Ronald Reagan's tax cuts with Tip O'Neill did help spur some growth. Yeah. And that marginal tax rates above 70% at 70% don't make a lot of sense and are bad for growth. That seems to be, that's consensus. That would be 70% a consen- is too high. Is too yeah, high. Yeah. But this idea that whatever level you're at, yeah. lower taxes will, because remember, it's not just will lead to growth, it'll lead to so much growth that the growth will generate more revenue for the government than if you had left the taxes where they were. And that view is, I would say, totally unsupported by evidence and is no longer something you can say without people smirking at you. And I, I, a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. So let us now see another prediction that he made. It's kind of conditional. It might be hard for you to score, but um, let's check in. Macroeconomists who have analyzed the history of U.S. tax policy have generally found that the stimulus associated with a tax cut is from one to two times the size of the cut. Accordingly, If the president's plan were accelerated aggressively into this year, we could expect GDP to be higher, all else equal, by perhaps as much as one percentage point, with the effect taking five to seven quarters. Such a stimulus could significantly change the odds of recession. He said that uh, these tax cuts will change the odds of a recession, I guess, lower the odds of a recession, and increase GDP by 1%. Any thoughts on... Yeah, I mean, it's a very puzzling statement that Hassett makes there because the if you want to think of the central debate over what the government can do to an economy and think of it as sort of Keynes versus Milton Friedman, the University of Chicago economist who is much more free market, what Keynes would argue is in certain situations where there's deep unemployment and low growth, the government can step in and sort of prime the pump, as they say. It can spend a lot of money. And that will get companies investing and doing things. The counter argument is not, oh, no, we should cut taxes. Because cutting taxes is actually still a Keynesian stimulus. It's still a Keynesian money effort in people's pocket. to get money in people's pockets. The counter argument is, and this is the Milton Friedman view, you can't do things in the short term. This comes from a view of human nature that differentiates these two views. But that as soon as you do something in the short term that's kind of a trick, like, oh, we're going to spend a lot of money or we're going to cut taxes and right away you're going to spend more, people internalize, 
oh, no, but we'll eventually have to pay that back. So I don't want to spend too much because I know I'm going to have to pay that back eventually through taxes, through higher taxes. So that whole period in 2000, 2001 into 2003, um, the whole Bush stimulus, remember when we got these checks in the mm-hmm. mail and, and and tax cuts, there was no ideology behind it whatsoever. It was, it, it was principleless in a sense. It was Milton Friedman's language of, you know, less taxes leads to growth and more jobs and but we're going to use Keynesian tools to get there but we're not going to follow the rules of Keynesianism. I mean it was a real muddle. Yeah. And I do think Kevin Hassett, like Glenn Hubbard who, you know, who's now dean of Columbia Business School, have a lot to answer for. I mean that w- that was nonsense what they were promoting. It was political nonsense and my hunch is they knew it and and that's your job there is to say a little bit of political nonsense. Now, and we heard him solidly saying that GDP will be 1% higher with the tax cuts. I'll just remind everyone cuz I know you have these numbers uh, listener at the top of your head. I'll just remind everyone what GDP was in the 4 years before uh, those tax cuts were introduced. GDP was right around 4.5% every year, never lower than 4.1, never higher than 4.7. And then in 2001, when we got the tax cuts, GDP was growth was 1%, and the next year is 1.8%. I guess maybe uh, Hassett could say, oh, without the cuts, instead of uh, 1.8%, it would have been 0.8%, but it was still less than half of what it had been beforehand. Yes. I think the real, the real cardinal sin here is making firm predictions. Yeah. All right, let me play one more clip. Maybe there's something to chew over that we haven't hit already. The aggregate output 10 years from now should be between 2 and 4 percentage points higher if we pass the Bush plan. If that happens, then we'll have $700 billion extra to play with and use to address our important national problems at that time. Did that happen, Adam? <laughs> that did not happen. I mean, <laughs> This has been leading question theater. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, he missed the 2001 recession. He missed the anemic growth after it. And he really missed, obviously, the 2007-2008 Great Recession that just set us way behind trend growth, meaning we are much, much, much poorer than even the most conservative, (laughs) politically conservative, cautious economists would have predicted. Look, here is the trick they're playing. And this is what is maddening because it really is, you know, and and I would like to imagine that principled conservative economists, right-wing economists, free market economists would, would stand up and say so. It would be responsible to say, in my belief, Permanent changes in the tax code, so a tax compromise that we have reason to believe and we can convince the world Mm -hmm. will stay in place for decades and decades to come. You could imagine that would make investors invest more, blah, blah, blah. But only if we are also communicating to the population that we have our fiscal house in order and there's not going to be some huge deficit that you're going to have to pay back. That is not what Kevin Hassett was saying in 2001, and that's not what people are saying now. What they're saying now is, I have this nonsense story that has never, ever been true, that not even my own founding principles tell me could happen, that somehow, even though we are creating a huge deficit, it doesn't matter because of magic growth. There is no economic theory there. There's no idea. There's no history. There's no data. It's nonsense. Just like under the Kennedy administration, there was a sort of Keynesian nonsense that we can use Keynes's principles to micro fine tune the economy and choose exactly the right level of wage growth and employment growth, etc. I mean, there's certainly plenty of left wing nonsense. It's just we're in an age of right wing nonsense about tax policy. You know, I would love it if newscasters would just say 
And House and Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady said magic will happen and miracles will occur that have never occurred before. And, you know, because that is the language here. And and Kevin Hassett definitely knows better and should should maybe say so. I know that's unrealistic, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. OK, I have three three questions, three additional questions, all perhaps to get Kevin Hassett off the hook a little. He would argue and the Bush economic team argued then 9-11 happened. 9-11 changed everything. So maybe we weren't wrong, but we just didn't foresee 9-11 as no one did. No. <laughs> First of all, I remember my friend Simon Johnson, who was the chief economist at the IMF and did the defining global forecast, economic forecast for the world, really. And he said a responsible forecast just assumes every 18 months or so something huge and unpredictable happens. So, yeah. so we didn't think there'd be a war, but there's often a war. <laughs> and there's often a something. Yeah. And, so, and so what that tells you is you need to embrace uncertainty but maybe maybe the argument is the uh, the uncertainty of uh, Katrina is one thing. A nine eleven, it was ten times worse, a hundred times worse to the economy than anything we'd ever seen. Is um, that true? No, it was not a hundred times worse. No, this is the point. Like the point of economic theory is that you are operating in a vacuum of knowledge about the future, and you have to take that deep uncertainty inside. When he was making those statements in 2001, we, we didn't know about 9-11. Probably for the average American, more importantly, we hadn't fully taken on what China getting permanent most favored nation status would mean for, yeah. for a lot of American workers. But that's the whole point. That's why you want a surplus when you can have a surplus and you don't cut taxes when you have a chance to maintain a surplus and, and live in a fantasy land where the surplus will take care of itself. For every nice thing that you and Austin Goldsby and everyone else, Jared Bernstein, said about Hassett, should that testimony disqualify him in the current conversation? I don't know. I'm really torn. I, d I don't know that Kevin Hassett is all that much of an outlier. The idea of an economic advisor to the president is a relatively new idea. The Truman administration launched it. You know, on the one hand, it's supposed to be this group of truth tellers who tell the president the truth and say, no, you can't do all the things you want to do and lower taxes and not have a deficit. That's sort of the whole point of it. On the other hand, they're part of the administration, and sometimes they're told to put on their big boy pants and go sell our thing on Congress. So I don't know that we should personalize Kevin Hassett. You know, we probably should make a lot of fun of him for some of his <laughs> more ambitious predictions. Yeah. But I don't think we should single him out as uniquely awful. He's definitely not uniquely awful. I'd say he's... He's right there in the mix. Well, on his next book, uh, after Dow 36,000, I think your blurb, Not Uniquely Awful, would do really well right on the cover. He is free to use that. I'm giving over the IP. Adam Davidson covers economics for The New Yorker, and uh, his aggregate output would be 2 to 4% higher if he drank more Red Bull. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. It is a shame, President Trump has said, that I'm not supposed to dictate political investigations to the Justice Department because that crooked Hillary needs some investigating. Of course, the fact that I and you know that President Trump thinks that means that he is kind of dictating political investigations to the Justice Department. Indeed, the Washington Post reported that Attorney General Jeff Sessions is looking into appointing a special prosecutor at Hillary Clinton, for Hillary Clinton, toward Hillary Clinton. Today, Sessions was up on the Hill, 
And he actually rebuffed the idea. Well, the idea as specifically proposed by Ohio Representative Jim Jordan. So first, in his question, Jordan listed everything Jim Comey ever did wrong. Among the terrible things, he called what was an investigation a matter. Okay. And Sessions answered him and said, you know, there are actual statutory reasons to initiate a special prosecutor. Not just because you're mad about something. Jim. Jordan came back with, well, how about this here, Bushelow Peak? We know the Clinton campaign, the Democrat National Committee paid for, uh, through the law firm, paid for the dossier. And it sure looks like a major political party was working with the federal government to then turn an opposition research document, the equivalent of some National Enquirer story, into an intelligence document, take that to the FISA court so that they could then get a warrant to spy on Americans associated with President Trump's campaign. That's what it looks like. Doesn't that warrant naming a second special counsel, as 20 members of this committee wrote you three and a half months ago asking you to do. Sessions' answer came down to this. And I would say expired. looks like is not enough basis to appoint a special counsel. Ask a sloppy question, open yourself up to a cutting answer. Movement conservatives perhaps mistake the damage that a Clinton investigation would do. Looking into the Uranium One deal, the lamest non-scandal since Bush puked on the Japanese, will perhaps excite the humors of the Breitbart or Freedom Caucus precincts, but not much else. Uranium One, if I were the Clintons to say, here, here are all the record books, here are all the transcripts, take it, we're not going to object. I can imagine a scene like Miracle on 34th Street, where all the uranium experts march into the special prosecutor's office and empty sacks of every bit of uranium that was shipped to the Russians under the deal, and there's nothing in the sacks, sack after sack of nothingness on the desk of, uh, since this is a, a conservative fever dream on the desk of special counsel Rudy Giuliani, what's going on? There really is nothing there. And the people clamoring for such an investigation, it seems to me, mistake how much Democrats would be hurt by it. How much Democrats still care about the Clintons. The Clintons once were the Democratic Party, but that day is done. An investigation might annoy them or tie them in knots. It will ultimately achieve nothing. There's nothing to Uranium One. It just won't hurt the Democrats. It might hurt the Clintons. It might annoy the Clintons. But the Clintons have now been cleaved from the Democrats. But the Clinton's past is never dead. Like the Faulknerian phrase goes, it's not even past. Yesterday, New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg wrote a column titled, I Believe Juanita Broderick. In 1999, Juanita Broderick came forth and accused Bill Clinton of raping her in 1978. The reason this is coming up now is that backers of Roy Moore are doing a lot of whataboutism as pertaining to Bill Clinton. Because, you know, I don't know if you know this, Bill Clinton is the guy who's running against Roy Moore in Alabama. He changed his name to Doug Jones, but it's really Bill Clinton. Now, of all the Clinton accusers over the years, uh, well, Monica did have an affair, and I guess Jennifer Flowers did too, but of Paula Jones, Kathleen Willey, and Winita Broderick, Winita Broderick's allegations are the hardest to disprove. Now, hard to disprove is different than prove in the same way I believe Juanita Broderick is different from saying Juanita Broderick is telling the truth or simply, Juanita Broderick was indeed raped by Bill Clinton. We cannot say that at this point. Juanita Broderick's claims, to refresh you, came at a very specific time in the Clinton sex scandal drama. He had been impeached. He was still facing a lawsuit from Paula Jones. 
Juanita Broderick showed up a couple years earlier as Jane Doe number five in the Paula Jones lawsuit. She denied then that she was ever assaulted in the 70s by Bill Clinton, but later she was offered immunity by Ken Starr. She recanted that Paula Jones affidavit. She said she was indeed assaulted. Ken Starr didn't think it was relevant to his investigation. He moved on. But Broderick didn't move on. She was constantly being pressed to bring these claims out. And by 1999, she did. Quickly, she was lumped in with a variety of Clinton accusers who didn't seem credible. For instance, I mentioned Kathleen Willey. Willey claimed that Clinton groped her, but she claimed a lot of other things along the way. Here she is alleging that Clinton hired a thug to kill her cat. A stranger approached me, mentioned my 13-year-old cat who had disappeared, my tires which had been vandalized, and asked how my children by name were and said, you're just not getting the message. Paula Jones was to some extent undermined when she said that Bill Clinton had distinguishing marks on his penis, which he exposed to her in an Arkansas hotel room. A doctor and Monica Lewinsky disagreed with those claims. Now on to Juanita Broderick. When her accusations against Clinton first publicly surfaced, they were written up in the Wall Street Journal's editorial pages and later NBC aired an interview with her. At the time, Jack Nelson, the Washington bureau chief of the LA Times said, this is a story that's been knocked down and discredited so many times, I was shocked to see it in the journal today. Everyone's taken a slice of it, and after looking at it, everyone's knocked it down. The woman has changed her story about whether it happened. It just wasn't credible. There are two journalists who were the gold standard of delving into the cottage industry to take down the Clintons. They were Joe Coniston and Gene Lyons. Their book, The Hunting of the President, had this to say about Juanita Broderick and the accusers. Virtually the whole cast of characters from the sexual side of the Clinton scandals either filed affidavits or gave depositions between October 1997 and January 1998. Juanita Broderick had done both, adamantly insisting that the allegations made in Philip Yoakum's widely circulated letter claiming Bill Clinton had sexually assaulted her in a Little Rock hotel room in 1978 were spurious. No copies of tape recordings Yoakum claimed to have made of her allegedly confirming the charge ever materialized. Nothing surfaced that hadn't previously been reported. None of the president's accusers had done very well. Here were some other facts that were used to discredit Broderick at the time. It was pointed out that it took 20 years for her to come forward. There was the fact that she didn't tell her husband at the time that she was raped by Bill Clinton. I'll read from liberal columnist Bill Press writing in 1999. Broderick can remember every detail of the rape except the month and day it occurred. If it scarred her for life, wouldn't she remember the date or at least the month? By the way, Slate covered the events and they did this thing where they said, if you think Clinton's guilty, this is the frame to read it in. If you think Clinton's innocent. And they went as far as to agree with Bill Press. If you believe Clinton is innocent, it is hard to believe that a raped woman would forget the date. Much was made in writing by Sidney Blumenthal, a Clinton-friendly journalist. Clinton-friendly to say the least, journalist to say the most. And that argument was that after... The alleged rape, Broderick attended a fundraiser for Clinton within a year. Now, you begin to see, especially if you're listening to this in 2017, which is how it's meant to be consumed, you begin to see that so many of these arguments that discredit Broderick couldn't be made today. 
or maybe they would be made by Roy Moore's defenders. But the Overton window of the acceptability of a lot of those points has shifted. As we learn more and more about rape victims and how they act and how they process information, the damaging, so-called damaging facts of yesteryear become explicable by today's standards. In fact, no sensible person would talk about the alleged victims in the way that Hillary Clinton talked about them in 1998. When all of this is put into context and we really look at the people involved here, look at their motivations, look at their backgrounds, look at their past behavior, some folks are going to have a lot to answer for. I'll read for you Bill Press's conclusion. It stands in for essentially the conventional wisdom about Juanita Broderick's claims at the time. Yes, it's disturbing to hear the president of the United States accused of rape. But it's even more disturbing to see an innocent man condemned without the evidence. In this case, the evidence against Bill Clinton is simply not there. Now, I say today, we, or at least those who cover and pursue understanding in matters of sexual violence, have reversed that calculus. They think it is more disturbing to dismiss accusations of rape. And this leads to, I believe, Juanita Broderick as a headline on a column in the New York Times. That statement seems really strong, but it's actually kind of weak. It seems to say, I have come to the conclusion that Juanita Broderick was raped by Bill Clinton. It roughly seems synonymous with that, right? But it's not because of the word believe. I believe in angels. I believe the election was rigged. I believe Juanita Broderick. I believe that global warming comes from the emission of carbon gases. A belief doesn't have to reference evidence or standards of proof or anything. You're free to believe in whatever you want. Are we closer to saying Juanita Broderick has been proved correct? Not really. What we have been doing is reevaluating why we dismissed her in the first place. It's fair to say that as judged by the standards of how we should treat alleged rape victims today, Juanita Broderick was treated unfairly. A lot of the arguments used to dismiss her back in 1999 would not fly today. They were wrong, except for this one fact. They worked. And since this was a political problem, worked is what counted. To say you believe Juanita Broderick is also to say you believe a person whose social media presence right now is just retweeting the far right, retweeting Bill Mitchell, saying that Russian collusion leads to Hillary Clinton, uh, constant references to the Clinton crime syndicate. To believe Juanita Broderick is to believe Hannity and Ann Coulter nailed this one. Hannity's given Juanita Broderick a platform for years. He asked her the same kind of non-probing questions he asked Roy Moore. To believe her is to believe that the wealthy conservatives who were obsessed with a smear campaign against the Clintons for years and years, from draft dodging the Whitewater to the Arkansas Project, well, score one for them. Then we come to the question, is to believe her to believe the other accusers? Not necessarily, but she has always aligned herself with Paula Jones and Kathleen Willey. We were all assaulted by Bill Clinton, she and they all say. Actually, to be fair, there are lots of ways we can account for the cognitive dissonance that believing her would entail. Of course there are. Still, I do not know whether I believe her. I'm sure much that discredited her shouldn't have. But I stop at saying, I believe Juanita Broderick. It's not that I do or that I don't. It's that I just think we can't know. And I think we can't know actually is an adequate basis to make other judgments about the world and not be called a hypocrite. It is true. If you want to have super high standing when you're blasting Roy Moore, then also saying, I believe Juanita Broderick is an appealing statement to adhere to. But I think it's fine. It is more conditional and less clear, but it's fine to say that we can't know with a reasonable degree of surety 
about Broderick's allegations. In fact, I do think that is the only defensible position. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre bien who once predicted that at the current rate of evolution, by 2017, a millipede would only have seven legs, but the Indian deity Ganesh would be down to three arms. Wrong. Just was produced by Mary Wilson, who in 1995 said that Qbert would supplant Mickey Mouse as America's favorite icon. She later said she meant America's favorite icon who can only move diagonally, but I don't even know if she's right about that. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He says that by next year, podcast players will go at speed so fast that they'll leap ahead of what the host is saying, and you will have to wait for him as he gathers his thoughts. The gist in 1992 said that based on an analysis of current food trends, by the turn of the century, over 80% of edibles will be available in clear, including clear mustard, clear chocolate milk, and clear steak au poivre. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.